what I would share with you this morning comes, you would understand, as a uh, personal word. There's nothing uh, academic or theoretical about what I would share with you this morning. And I would ask you at the onset just to excuse all the personal uh, references. But I believe that's the only way that I could seek to be true to the assignment that uh, has been given to me and try to share something of my own heart with you. I normally do not follow an outline very closely, but uh, I would like to do so now. On Tuesday, about 12 o'clock, January the 21st, 1975, just a few days over one year ago, my wife of 24 years and seven months went home to be with the Lord. From that moment when uh, my son, who uh, happened to be at home with his mother, recovering from, uh, he was recovering from a minor surgery, uh, called me that she had had uh, the attack. Uh, from that moment until a few minutes later, when a uh, very kind doctor who had close personal family friend uh, came and said those words that I had heard many, many, many times in my ministries, I'd been with families, uh, she's gone, I'm sorry. From that moment until this moment, it is an understatement to say that uh, my personal life my pastoral life, uh, my family life, has been changed. It was an interesting thing that in the moment that uh, the doctor came and said we've done all that we could and she's gone, I knew from that very moment that I would have her funeral. That came as a rather strange thing to, I think, my family, uh, many friends. And yet, uh, I'd been her pastor for nearly a quarter of a century, and only the second pastor she had ever had. Grew up under a wonderful giant of a man, and uh, we had had glorious experiences together. And under the leadership and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I feel firmly. The hour of the funeral was indeed a worship experience, and the power of God was present in a real way for me um, that goes beyond a, a way to express. I said on that day what has to be said, I think, here. And let me share with you that what I'm saying today are some random thoughts that I wrote down about midnight last night. There's no real coherent order. It's not a sermon. There's not a neat outline to it. Just some random thoughts that I hope will be, be helpful um, in the subject that is mine, a pastor facing uh, his own personal grief. 
Donald Gray Barnhouse was one of the great teachers of this century. I still thrill when I hear him teach by means of tape. I heard him once over in Memphis. I heard him make this statement that I've quoted so many, many times. He said, death is at the same time the most ordinary and the most extraordinary event in all the world. I found that to be true. If statistics hold on that same January the 21st that my Sue died, there were probably some 5,000 deaths across America that same day. Very ordinary experience. Funeral held, funeral procession, graves dug. Uh, rather common, ordinary experience. But when it's in your family, and it's your wife, or your youngster, or your mother, or your dad, the clock stops. You put a red circle about a calendar date. It's a different date from that moment on. It's a very extraordinary kind of thing. The pastor, as you fellows know, better than uh, any of your deacons or any of the members of the WMU or any of the members of the church or any, anybody happen to know, the pastor is a human being just like anybody else. The, the sicknesses that strike others strike us. The diseases that eat away at others eat away at us. The sorrows that strike in a time of grief strike us. No different. And as we have seen death invade the family circle of so many of our church people, and we've tried to be there, all of us, every one of us, to be there and simply let our presence be a help. When that hurt has come, so that same hurt is a part of a pastor's experience. Everything that I'd ever preached in 30 years, and I've been ordained 30 years, everything I'd ever preached, every word of comfort I'd ever tried to give to families, and I've been in the home or at the funeral home or at the side of the grave, Everything I had ever said that I believed in was on the line, right then and there. I'm grateful that God gave a, what I would term for lack of a better term, a cocoon. I guess the psychologist uh, Jack would say, shock. There's something protective uh, that sort of comes over uh, in these times. I found that true. 
decisions, and it may be because uh, I had dealt with death so very many times, though not on the personal level, because my parents are still living in their late 70s, active, going, uh, my only sister, still living, the death of my grandparents, a rather remote thing because all four of my grandparents lived to be nearly a hundred. And so this experience of death, my, my first personal experience with personal grief came at the very closest point in my companion. But the shock helped, and it has continued to, to help throughout this year. I discovered that the sources of comfort were abundant. When driving back from the emergency room to the house and turning in, going up the drive and going in my house that I knew instinctively was going to be a different place from that moment on. Jack and June McEwen were standing there in my living room. And I don't have any idea what Jack had to say, but I knew he was there. And I have had occasion to think so many times, it's not what we say to others in their times of need, it's the hand clasp, it's the fact of being there, it's a presence. The friends, the telephone calls, the off-quoted scriptures that we've all used so many, many times suddenly blazed into a, a brand new awareness and a brand new meaning. Twenty years ago, I went back to Memphis for the third time, stayed there three years before coming here 17 years ago. In those three years at Memphis, I averaged over three funerals a week. I was in and out of the funeral home just about every single day for those three years. I often felt I was more on the staff of the Memphis Funeral Home, then the old National Funeral Home, and I wasn't staff of the church where I drew my salary. So I'm familiar with death and how many times I've read the 23rd Psalm and how many times I've read John 14, how many times 1 Thessalonians, fourth chapter, in order to comfort other people and show that God was still in control of things to other people. Suddenly those passages, every one of them, literally jumped off the page and uh, the Holy Spirit let these words take on a new life and a reality in my own experience. My wife had a special life verse. She lived by it. Those who knew Sue were around her a good bit, often laughed at uh, her approach to problems and uh, 
difficulties and to times of crossroad decisions because Romans 8.28 was the verse she lived by. She believed it. It was not just a, a verse to be quoted by her. She believed with all her heart that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. She lived by that and she died by that verse. And I had that verse etched into the little tombstone up in the country cemetery. We had sought to shape our ministry together around that passage. And I had to come to grips with it. I'll not go into detail of family difficulties, of uh, in-laws and outlaws and difficulties and problems up and down the family tree. We've all got those kind of situations. But I had to ask God, Lord, uh, when she meant so much to so many people, and there are others who just seem to be a drain and a drag, <laughs> why? But you wrestle with it, and you lay it at the feet of Jesus, and leave it there. All things do work together for good. I discovered for myself, as I had tried to lead my people over the years, to know that grief needs expression. We hear a great deal about the, the fact that the funeral is outdated. The funeral has no place about the, the uh, errors of the funeral industry and all of these things. Well, I would stand to say that all of this has its place. Grief needs an expression. Grief needs an outlet. How many times have people sobbed in your presence and others have said, now, just calm down, be quiet, just, you know, you know don't cry. I've never quite taken that turn with others because I've realized that tears are as much a gift from God as any other gift that he gives. Grief needs a means of expression. We're fearfully and we're wonderfully made. In the funeral hour and the presence of, of real friends in not only those hours but the hours that have followed. I discovered in my own personal grief that as I reread for my own devotional purposes and in study for sermons in the, this year now that has followed, I've discovered that all of those promises that God made to us way back there, uh, that God just keeps on keeping those promises, they're real. They're true. And that he does direct our lives when we let him. The pastor, in dealing with his personal grief, while he's like all other men, when, he, when a man loses his wife, 
There are the changes in home. There are the changes in the family structure. The grief that we know, it's not any different from the grief that others know who really love each other. But I've discovered this, that there is indeed a vast difference in the way that the pastor handles his grief or turns it over to God to let God use it for his own glory. Now you'll totally and completely misunderstand me at these next, in these next few minutes if you're not careful. And what I want to say to you, I'm not sure that I can say adequately or properly because it's no effort at all, no intention at all, I mean not at all, to anything toward Ralph McIntyre. I simply would like, again, in my assignment, to share with you how this one pastor tried to face his personal grief and some of the things that God has done in the light of that experience. We who are pastors have only one commodity, and that's our influence. We don't sell books. We're not in the pencil sharpening business. We just have influence, that's all. And the measure of our ministry depends upon the kind and the degree and the direction of the influence we bear upon others. Within our own congregations or beyond our own congregations in any sort of a civic way. We have only our influence. A man's wife can die and there is the grief in the home but we're part of a larger family and how grateful we ought to be to God for that. In a very real sense, a church is a family. And now that's what Brainerd has been. I can't speak for your congregation. I can only speak for mine, where God has given me a glorious and a wonderful privilege of being now for almost 17 years. We call ourselves a family the people of Brainerd love each other and seek to share each other's hurts. And I discovered that the family was real and the feeling was real. But I also discovered that how I would face and meet and accept and live under this, which is a common experience, would in a great measure determine the kind of influence I could have as pastor of that congregation or any congregation from that day on. And so I ask you to accept it on what is difficult to be an objective study, or it is subjective, and yet I would hope that it would be an objective report. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, my people in the course of these 12 months have expressed 
to me and to others who have talked to me how that they have been strengthened in some personal crisis through which they were moving because they saw the working of the Holy Spirit being able to bring help to my own life. I said a while ago you would misinterpret me if you're not careful. For I'm not putting a neon halo above my head. I point only to what the Holy Spirit of God did in this one preacher's life. Again and again and again, as death has come every few days in Brainerd Congregation, as I have walked into those family situations, there have been those who have said, Pastor, we just want to try to face this as we've seen you do it. Don't misunderstand me. Take this as an objective thing. God has taken the hardest thing that has ever come into my life and has turned it into something for his glory. And only God can do that. Only God. All things do work together for good. I haven't gotten all the answers yet. In fact, I haven't even learned how to ask all the right questions yet. But there are some things you just have to leave and know that when God's ready, he'll also open that door. My people say, and I'm trying to be objective, that my preaching has been totally different in the last 12 months. That's their word, not mine. I don't know whether that's true or not. I don't know whether my preaching is really any different or whether they hear me on a different wavelength. I don't know. Or whether it's a combination of the two. There's something about sharing a common grief that draws people together in an empathy and a sympathy for each other that just nothing else can accomplish. And I've discovered that in these 12 months, a whole new ministry to bereaved families has opened up. A willingness on the part of people to sit down and to share with their pastor. They've never been willing to do so before, or maybe they never felt that the pastor would understand. But many have discovered that the pastor does understand. In the last 12 months, not only has the ministry of dealing with my personal grief and for my family 
And I've got to stop here and say parenthetically that the power of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of my children has been an amazing and an exciting and thrilling thing for this dad to see. I have discovered in this 12 months that those in the church undergoing all of the heartache and all of the trauma and all of the difficulties of separation and divorce are living through something that's even worse than the death situation. And a whole new sympathy has come into my heart, though I've tried to deal with this problem and with individuals in these needs. A whole new sympathy has developed in my heart. The Holy Spirit has enabled me to be used in a, I think, in a more sympathetic way with these who are so often victims of the unkindness of others. There's been a joyous byproduct that has come out of my own experience. I don't know how many. I wish sometimes I'd kept the tally points of the number of preachers, preacher friends of mine, and preachers' wives, and the number of them that I'd never heard of before, who've either written me or called me or stopped by to see me or by some means have shared with me that after hearing or reading or knowing of the death of Sue, that they sat down together as husband and wife and talked about what they had going for the Lord and how things might change if one of them died. And by the score, literally, pastors and wives have shared with me that in the quietness and in the sanctity and in the sacredness of the privacy of their own lives, they had made new commitments to each other and to the Lord. That's been a joyous byproduct that has come out of my own personal grief. I've always believed that Jesus' salvation was real. But I believe it more than ever. I've always believed that the Christian life is the best kind of life to live. I know that now more than ever. For 30 years, I've believed and preached that Jesus conquered death and the grave. But it's no longer academic. I know it to be a fact. For three decades, I've tried to preach every once in a while on heaven. but now I know it's reality. My hero 
is not the man that some of you who may know me or my past might think that it is. Though I have the highest and the greatest admiration for the great preacher Lee. My hero is really a black preacher who died in 1901. Year before last, I, I found his tombstone in the Woodlawn Cemetery, Richmond, Virginia. John Jasper. And if you do not have Richard L. Worth Day's biography called Rhapsody in Black, you get it. It's been republished in paperback. Dr. Day gives an account of that last, what's next to the last sermon. John Jasper preached, old man, he preached on heaven. Well, I've tried to preach on heaven. And I preached on heaven several times in 1975 but it's been with a new understanding of what the territory looks like and of what God's doing. I've believed all my life, sometimes with charts and sometimes without charts, <laughs> that the Lord's on his way back. But just as yesterday, and I stood out at Greenwood Cemetery with a little tiny circle of family and helped to place in the ground the body of a little 95-year-old lady and read again in the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians how the Lord's coming back and what's going to happen. A new excitement and a new thrill, a new longing, a new desire that that just might happen today. For I want to see my Lord. But I'd have to share with you that one of the great things I'm looking for, if that happens while I'm alive, is that Sue's going to be coming back with him. Loneliness is a very real thing. It's conceivable that a man might be the most successful surgeon in this city and his wife never ever meet a single one of his patients or never stand in the operating theater or never ever extend a hand of help to any one of his suffering patients. It's conceivable that a man might be the most successful attorney in this city and that his wife never ever meet a single one of his clients. Never go with him to the courtroom. And on and on. But that's not the relationship that we have with our wives, is it, men? 
They share our days, they share our nights, they share our dreams. To be able to have someone to talk to. Someone that won't pass it on. There is a loneliness. But God is good even in that. I miss talking to her and planning things with her. I miss last Saturday giving her a Valentine present. That part of the grief still lingers. And I miss sharing the victories and the, the good times and the happy experiences with her. But faith, when all is said and done, it is faith in God that matters most. Believing from the top of the head to the bottom of the foot that whatever happens to me as just one person who happens to be honored of God to be called into his service who has gone through and is going through this experience to have it firmed up and solidified that whatever happens has happened to me only by the permission of my loving Heavenly Father in that knowledge is the personal grief bearable. And I believe that. There have been too many times when tragedy or sadness has struck and people have had some sense of buoying up and for the moment some sense of comfort in saying, well, the will of God. But I'll tell you something. I don't believe God sends ill into the life of his children. He chastises us. He corrects us. But we live in a world where there are other forces and other powers that seek to weaken us and would destroy our ministries. But in these 12 months, 54 weeks, I have been helped again and again and again in the knowledge that God let Sue die only in that circle of his loving care for her and for me. Perspective is a rare and a wonderful thing, isn't it? Have you ever had the experience of in visiting in this crooked street town of just getting lost, wandering around, trying to find out where streets start and stop, and how they go? And then maybe 
to be in a small plane or in a commercial plane flying low enough, you look down at some time and you get the picture. You're up high enough to get a new perspective and you begin to see how those streets move. <coughs> you just couldn't see it down there in the middle of it. But in the higher perspective, you see how it all put together. Now that's exactly the way God deals with us. We say, why, Lord? We'd look forward to many years together. Why, Lord? There was so much out there we were planning. Why, Lord? But God, who has a different perspective, could see on out yonder, for tomorrow is like yesterday. And God, in his loving mercy for his children, could see some things out there that I can't see and still don't see. And I have to trust and I have to believe that in his loving mercy, he was being good to her and being good to me, no matter how grievous it seems at the moment. It hurts to drive home. The deadest room in the house is the kitchen these days. Two girls are still at home. We stir around a little for breakfast, but uh, eat our other meals away. There's a loneliness about it, and there's a hurt that's there. But I try every day and every night just to turn that hurt over to Jesus and to ask him to use the hurt and to use me and to help me. Let me share in closing from the Amplified Translation, a passage that's meant a great deal to me. I've referred to 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, a number of times, and you're familiar with that. But I want to share with you another mountain peak in that same letter over here in the fifth chapter. Be happy in your faith and rejoice and be glad-hearted continually, always. Be unceasing in prayer, praying perseveringly. Thank God in everything, no matter what the circumstances may be. Be thankful and give thanks, for this is the will of God for you, for you who are in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. And because I believe the Word of God and do not question, I do believe just as he said, for this 
is the will of God for you who are in Christ Jesus. And I have tried imperfectly. I've tried to turn it over to the Lord. Simply praying that the Lord would do with this grief in my own life whatever's pleasing to him. I've baptized several young adults who have come to know the Lord Jesus. They turned to him at her funeral hour. A trophy for Jesus. Even in that hour. 